So, round two, my man, <laughs> Dan Staten. <laughs> we, uh, we recorded this last week. I appreciate you taking the time. And uh, I had to pause it in the middle for some dog action. And yay, StreamYard, but it didn't save the first part. So, we're kicking in and, and starting over again. And we kind of started with your film 60 hours which i thought was awesome and i think we talked about uh, just why you did it right basically showing the grind of public land hunting versus some of the stuff that a lot of people see on youtube right now yeah yeah that's what, exactly what we were trying to showcase was um it's a grind i don't care how long you've been elk hunting me that was i think my 22nd archery elk season so it was like, and honestly, I was like day 25. Well, actually, that's not even, I started, I left my house August 28th. And by August 25th, I had not killed an elk. And I'd been out in the field every day. And much, I was hunting. How much, I was just sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. How, how much uh, elk did you even get into? Like, did you get into a lot of elk? Or was it like seriously days upon days without seeing hearing anything good question eric i get into elk every time i go hunting that's a rule if you come to my elk shape camps i teach how to do that and it's not for everybody but like i generally don't go to bed unless i like have elk to hunt the next day located um and so people have heard me talk about this on my podcasts and at camps but like i'm a real life night bugler like there are times when i'm like well damn i don't know where to go tomorrow i'll get in my truck i'll get in um my four-wheeler or a dirt bike or an e-bike or on foot and i will night bugle because most elk are on their feet at night and you guys would all be surprised how much more willing elk are to give away their location at night versus day. And I think it makes sense if you think about it, but um, that, so when you asked me, are you, was it a lack of good elk hunting? No, I'm into elk every day. I had my bow pulled back multiple times where I just didn't like the shot that I was presented. Or um, one time I had gotten busted pulling my bow back at like 20 yards on a giant. I had, a cow bust me when I was waiting for the herd bull to step behind, take one more step. I had a calf bust me. Um, I had so many close calls where like, if one little thing had changed, I might've been completely tagged out in like a week, but that's bow hunting, man. Like we all know that, like everything has to be perfect for it to work. And I was having a month of just, everything's not being perfect. One little thing off. But I'm into elk every day. I cannot, there's not a day where I'm not literally in bow range of elk, um, which is crazy. But that's one thing I pride myself in is not, I don't go, I don't rest my head until I know that I have a particular group of elk to go after the next day. And there are times where I end up staying up most of the night. And sometimes I'll even like, never go to bed, hunt them in the morning. And then as soon as they get to their bed, I'm fairly within their bubble range, say a couple hundred yards, not going to get winded and I'll pass out and just sleep on them all day and wait for them to get up in the evening. I'm not a huge elk vocalizer when I hunt open country elk. If I'm in thick, dark terrain where the binocular binoculars are just worthless, then I'm going to vocalize. And I've, I encourage folks to know how to do all the strategies and be a chameleon out there but long answer but to answer your question dude you should be into elk every day it ups your odds as a bow hunter and when you suck like me you need to be into elk every day <laughs> well what's half the battle is or i mean i would say more than half the battle is getting getting into it right you can't get shots unless you're into it which i you know i'm having some of that same stuff with deer in south carolina it's like i went up to i've I saw more deer in Southern Illinois in a day and a half when I went up there in November than I've seen the entire year in South Carolina. And we were talking about that before we got on. It's just, I, I'm not on the right piece of property. So I'll fix that next year. But 
you're I was in a when you said that's bow hunting, like you're right. I was in a stand yesterday morning from six thirty to nine thirty. Uh it was one that's a pretty good stand in the morning transitionally during the rut, and I'm kind of was kind of hoping to catch something in the second rut. And I ripped that down, took it, put it up in a different place that's a good, you know, transition area for nighttime feeding. Was hoping I'd get something through at night. And I was there from ten thirty until six thirty last night and I didn't see a thing. And my wife on the way home was like, Why are you out there all day? I'm like, You don't get a shot unless you're in it. So you gotta be in it. Right? That's so tough. I uh, I'm not sure. Like I just got done with my whitetail season here in Washington and I had I sat I have several spots on public land. One which we had a funny incident at. We can get into that if you want. But um, I had sat four times in my best spot. I had four bucks on trail camera that I wanted to harvest. And so I was all in on this one spot. And I think I sat it four times and I saw one doe the very first morning. And these are dark to dark sits. Yeah. So I really had like 3.9 blank sits. And no cell phone service in this particular spot. And I was just like, I don't like this. Like I at least want to see some animals, even though if I'm not going to see a shooter, but so blank sits are disheartening, man. They're almost the worst. So I feel your pain, brother. Yeah. They're not fun. And it's like I said, I've, I've got to get a different piece of property for next year because I know that there's a lot of people that they've got the right pieces of property and they get some blanks, but at least even if you just, you know, get a run of does, get some activity. It, it kind of juices things up. I can't imagine a dark to dark sit without a phone. Cause I'll be honest, I get in the middle of the day when it's, you know, one o'clock and there's absolutely nothing going on. I, I sent you an email yesterday. I was like, Oh, here's the new elk shape video on YouTube. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, it is a treat. Phones can get you in trouble too, though. You yeah. can miss action. You can't but, uh, do it too much, can... man. I do. I mean, I, I'll read or listen to audio or a pod in one. I'll have like one earbud in yep. and um, or I'll watch like download some like Netflix movies or something, but something to pass the time. Um, but it's pretty brutal not seeing a critter. Um, yeah. But I mean, that's the grind we signed up for. And it's there's a parallel between deer hunting and elk hunting and really all hunting is that everything can change in 10 seconds as long as you just keep your head down, stay in the game. And uh, that's the thing I tell myself even in that film 60 hours is like, I think I said at the end of the film is just like, guys, it all can change in 10 seconds. If your head's down and you're kicking rocks and playing a fiddle, feeling sorry for yourself, you might miss the opportunity that is going to happen. But in my experience, if I just get out of bed every day and give it my best, eventually those 10 seconds are going to materialize and it's up to me to capitalize. And that's the beauty of it. That's the ups and downs, the highs and lows. That's why they're so extreme. And uh, that film kind of documented me going for almost like 29 days straight without really like never sending an arrow. And then on finally day 30 in Utah, I got to send one. And then that momentum went right into, I went back to public land in Idaho and just the very next, gosh, I think I, I killed, we butchered. No, we've broke the bull down. I drove the bull to a butcher because I needed to keep hunting, dropped it off. And then that very next morning in on a public land bull and bulls and got one killed. And I was like, dude, that was momentum. That's what I needed. I needed something to change. And um, it's funny, man. It's just like, it's very humbling. Um, and I love the roller coaster. That's kind of what I signed up for. And I think we all need to recognize that. Yeah, I agree with you. I think as long as as long as you're just getting a little bit of action, it just continues to feed the, you know, when I went to Southern Illinois, it was like, I, I killed in three sits. But the third one was, it was a warm day, like it was cold that morning, the temperatures were kind of doing this. And there was a, a an elevated blind. And it was like 72 degrees during the day. But the blind was like, 85 87 inside of it but but I, it sat like right where they were going to feed out of this bedding area into this corner of this cornfield so i went and got into it at like one o'clock 
And dude, it was so hot in there. Like I literally stripped down, like I had no shirt on. I just sat in there dripping wet for about two hours. Um, because the way the wind was blowing, if I would have opened the windows, it would have blown my scent right back into the bedding area. So, but that's like you said, I was like swiveling from one side to the other cause they could come in two different places. And I was looking at one side and then this was like 20 minutes before sundown. I swiveled back to the other side and all of a sudden there's this big eight point sitting there feeding, right? He just popped in. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. like you said, you know, it was like I had sat for four and a half hours and seen nothing. And then all of a sudden my guy was there. So how does that relate to obviously, you know, Eastern guys, whitetail hunting, we're up in a stand all the time, but is moving make it better? Cause obviously I haven't done an elk hunt yet. I'm doing, you know, plan trying to plan one for next year, but does moving make it better? I don't know if it does or doesn't. Um, I do think, like you said, uh, a couple moments ago, like just a little bit of elk juice, I call it bugle juice mm-hmm. is all I need to kind of keep my spirits high. So, um, man, it's, it is encouraging to hear a bugle or see some elk to know that you're getting, you know, that this, eventually you know the noose is cinching slowly um that's that's a good feeling that's a motivating feeling to get out there stay hungry um but it is kind of discouraging to have a blank day whether you're deer hunting or elk hunting it's just kind of like dang did i just waste a full day and this is never going to happen and and honestly that little voice in, all, in the back of all our heads will try to talk uh, talk to us and tell us like man this is you are wasting your time and that little voice kind of like compounds over the course of a few days where like maybe you get like a bad weather day and you're stuck in your tent it's miserable or even a couple days or maybe you have a couple like poor encounters with other hardworking public land hunters and you guys are just piling in the same basin and it's just like no one's going to get an elk or you're just not seeing any um maybe you get a text from home and you realize how homesick you are like i think the number one thing is like people quit hunts because they're just not able to stick it out the little voice the volume on it gets louder each day and then eventually like what am i doing out here i'm wasting my time i'd rather be at home uh we're just not comfortable with being uncomfortable as we need to be to do the deal and it just comes with reps it comes with a mindset, a year-round mindset. And um, yeah, I, I definitely think we all should anticipate, you know, some days that aren't stellar, but there's going to be that one day where it's magical and it will be like, that's what you signed up for. That's what you were hoping to ex- experience. So Yeah, that's right. Um, we talk a little bit about, because I think this is interesting for people who watch, if you're watching a lot of YouTube, especially if you're an East Coast guy and you are kind of thinking about, going out west to hunt that the the difference between that there's a lot of guys and this is not denigrating anybody because if i have the opportunity to do this i'm going to do the same thing but there's a lot of guys who are big on youtube big on tv they do a lot of production stuff they're not all out doing the public land grind like to get these big animals all the time i think that's important just for you know, the average person to know from a transparency standpoint so that they don't, you know, if they go out and do an over-the-counter tag in Colorado and slog it for 10 days and don't kill, that they're not thinking, you know, hey, I suck. I'm, you know, everyone else is killing left and right. And how come I can't figure this thing out? Yeah, definitely. It's, uh, well, I think we might've talked about this. I can't remember, but we, we both agreed that like YouTube's kind of like the new outdoor channel. Yeah. Yep or the new sportsman's channel or pursuit channel or insert who knows how many channels, but man, like I'm old school in the industry started in 2006 as a writer. Uh, this is before blogs or vlogs or Facebooks and things like that. So we, uh, you know, if you, your media was mainly magazines and TV. And when I was going to the archery trade show, the shot shows, I was working for a company and selling advertising for print media. And I was also side hustling, getting writing gigs for all the bow hunting magazines that I could eventually got a column in bow hunter magazine and, and did start doing a couple TV appearances with them or whatever. But back in the day, man, you had to like buy your airtime and most people bought their airtime. Very few didn't have to. And they'd spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to get this airtime, whether it be just a 
a couple quarters or the whole year, year round programming. And that's where like your, you know, Michael Waddell got to start uh, filming Realtree and then became the host of Realtree Road Trips and then eventually migrated to Bone Collector. Um, probably that's probably what he's still doing. Uh, there was a guy that I actually worked for as a contract video editor. Uh, and he had a show on the outdoor channel and he didn't have to buy airtime. The outdoor channel actually paid him. He was kind of a big deal and had uh, a Hollywood background. So his production quality, he was a tough guy to edit for very picky, but (laughs) I learned so much from him anyways, like, um, it's evolved like, uh, in about 20, I remember 2013, I hung up my cleats, so to speak. I was no longer going to write any articles for magazines or even like websites. Like I was like, I just want to make videos or be on videos on the internet. I want to go digital. And that's kind of when Elkshape started was 2013. And um, it was such a cool time to be in because it was pretty much Wild Wild West, still kind of is, where you could make digital content. And that's where people started to migrate more towards YouTube. Nowadays, I think most people consume hunting media via social media or um, YouTube, which is a social media. I don't think a lot of people go get print magazines or go to um, forums at like messaging bo- chat rooms. Like I know those are still around, but like, I don't think a lot of people do that. Like it's more like visually digitally um, on your device. So uh, when you see some hunts on YouTube, specifically elk hunting, it's not always going to like, especially if it's like you're seeing all these elk encounters day after day. And um, that's probably not public land. And it's really hard to entertain people with a public land hunt, in my opinion, just because it's not as sexy. There's just not, you know, it's way more of a grind. It's, in my opinion, it might be arguably more rewarding. Um, but I, I'm certainly not someone who likes to compare hunt for hunt. Um, I try to steer clear of that ego, bravado, machismo, like, well, you hunt private, I hunt public, therefore I'm better than you. Or, oh, you you pay for a lease for a deer? Oh, I, I just killed my buck on public land in the mountains, so therefore I'm better than you. That's not me. And I think we need to do a better job of recognizing, like, egos – get in all of our ways and we have a very small percentage of hunters in the united states we have 300 something million human beings living in the united states and we have like 15 ish million hunters if you do the math it's like i don't know a couple percent three or four percent are hunters so um there's not very many of us it would be pretty cool if we could all kind of support each other um i'm not saying not hold each other accountable when you know you got some distasteful stuff that is seen by strangers on the internet. I, I totally understand that. Um, but so police our own a little bit, but the, the unity is so evasive right now. It seems so impossible for hunters to be united. Um, and I started the campaign in 2023. I'm like, I'm going to just keep preaching on my podcast, united, not divided. Um, but that's a long segue into yes. Some of the stuff you see on YouTube or with some of um, even celebrity, I put that as in quotations, like well-known hunters. A lot of them are on private land for sure. Um, myself included, I went and hunted private land for elk in Utah this year and it was a treat and it was special. Um, I don't know if I'll ever get to another opportunity like that. So I took full advantage of it, but I also didn't, um, make it look like I was on public land. I was like, Hey, I'm on a private ranch, like not high fence. It's free range, but this is what I'm doing. And I think you would too, if you had the opportunity. Um, but I definitely love the public land deal because it's so damn hard. It is just so hard. So there's like a, you know, there's a transparency that is, um, probably not something people do as well as they could i.e. tell everybody where they're at or at least explain to them like hey this is why we're able to get into this specific herd day in and day out is like no one else is hunting them and um they're not as pressured it doesn't mean that they're like tame elk they're gonna walk right up and say hey ma'am right there put it behind my shoulder it ain't like that but uh it's just different it's definitely different and like there's a guy who um shoots the same bow as i do he's younger than me he's got a bigger following than me and i really like his work 
And I know he went to New Mexico and I don't know if that was a landowner tag or uh, a guided hunt, but I don't think he had success. And then he was headed to Utah to hunt the same place that I has, that I was hunting. Um, and on the way he stopped in Colorado and bought himself an OTC tag and grinded it out for several days. And I think he saw one elk and many hunters and heard hardly any bugles and just got a taste of how hard that public land over the counter life is. And then I think he went to Utah and he still grinded and got a bull to the place I did uh, on the very last day of his hunt. Um, I'm not gonna say his name, but he's just a dude I respect. Um, but I don't know if a lot of people know like how he was doing all that. And um, it's a grind, Eric. It's yeah. I, so I don't know if that's your question, if I'm answering it right, but like, yes, yeah, was, there's a I mean, lot. It was, it was just really and it. Like I'm with you. I don't care. You know, as a new hunter, I'm not one of these guys. I don't care where you hunt, like as long as you're hunting legally, obviously. But, you know, there's luckily I don't follow people. And I think maybe I just stay away from people like that on on social media. I don't follow people that get into all that mishmash. Like, I think you hunt where you have the chance to hunt. I think it's awesome that you even get the chance to, regardless mm -hmm. of who you are, or where you're hunting. So that yeah my the real the, the primary question was really what you answered you know it was just so that when people are watching these hunts they recognize some people have an advantage that you may not have don't get discouraged recognize that that's just like every other part of life right and if you're just hunting public land it's going to be harder and you're going to have to work harder and doesn't mean the other stuff isn't hard it doesn't mean those guys don't work hard it just means don't get discouraged. It may take longer. You may have to hustle harder. That's just the way it goes. That's really was the point of the question more than anything, honestly. Uh, yeah, I love it. Honestly, uh, I am so grateful for, I mean, I had a really fast success when I first started elk hunting with a rifle. Then I got right into bow hunting, thank God. And I had no success for several years in a row and I've said this on many podcasts, all my platforms, but like, just to reiterate those years of being a terrible elk hunter changed me, made me who I am today, made me ridiculously disciplined to the point where I'm probably boring. If you guys knew me in real life, I'm so dead set on preparing for next year and chasing that next big dream hunt and and making sure that i've done everything in my power to be prepared and it doesn't it's not like elk hunting is easy anywhere but i'm just telling you if you can learn how to get it done on public land where there's other hunters who have just as much opportunity as you and there's really a lot of predators around specifically where i hunt in the northwest like there are wolves in my state that are just unmanaged we're not even allowed to manage them idaho which they're almost impossible to manage because there's so much timber montana such a big state wyoming grizzly bears black bears cougars mountain lions everywhere i mean these animals are truly hunted 365 days a year and they have to survive these harsh winters and then you want to step out in their home field, they have home field advantage, and you're going to match wits with an animal that's hunted every day of its life. Like where you hunted today, Eric, nah, man, your refrigerator's 10 feet away. You can get your food, your bed's another 10 feet. That way you got running water and elk's got to travel miles for all those things and watch over its shoulder to make sure nothing's going to eat it. So you just got to like, take a step back and realize what you're actually signing up for, what you're trying to do. And so when it all does come together, I want you to smell the roses. Like you, you've done something that is extremely um, special and uh, that's elk hunting on public land. And so I it's dear near my heart, but I'm also an opportunist. I will always be open to the idea of doing any kind of hunt, but I will always stay transparent as to what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things I thought was really cool in the film when you talk about being transparent was you showed uh and this had nothing to do with being out in the field but you showed the things that happened to all of us 
right? The whether it was, um, I mean, a great example is the wallet thing, right? Where you're like, you had left your wallet somewhere, realized it, it had to do with, you know, you were, you had to have money for, I can't remember what it was, but you, you had something go down or what was it? I know you realized that you had left. I broke, uh, I broke a part on my dirt bike. Yeah, that was it. That was it. But that's like those kind of things. They happen to us every day, right? These things where you have to deal with the, the struggle, the thing that's like, Hey, that's not what I'm, I'm out here trying to do X. And then Y happens. Like I had this happen yesterday. I'm up setting up my second set. I'm up there, blah, blah, blah. And I'm, you know, 20 feet in the air. Everything's where it needs to be. And my backpack falls off the hook and falls 20 feet to the ground. Everything explodes, you know, it's just, and then I, and I'm saddle hunting. So then I got to unhook my tether and do all that. And you're like, you just, my initial reaction, because I'm not a patient person, is to scream at the top of my lungs and freak out. But hunting has actually made me not do that and learn how to deal with that piece of my personality. Yeah. Man, you're signing up for adversity. Yeah, man. Um, I've had so many things go wrong to where I'm pretty much calloused for when they do. I'm expecting something to go wrong now every year. Like, That's part of the game. You just deal yep. with it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It's not always fun, but like I'm, I'm, I'm okay with things going, you know, bad. I mean, I can give you a few examples. Like I've, I've left my wallet at a 24 hour pump gas station for a full week, not knowing it, hunting my brains out. And then it's time to like go fix that bike part and get some gas in my truck. And now I've got a wallet and I'm thousand miles away from my house. And I got three more weeks of elk hunting to do. What are you going to do? Um, what you're going to do is you're going to pray. That's what I did. I prayed. I was just like, and I was real specific with my prayers, but, um, I've had, did you forget uh, to ask God not to let him fill up somebody else's gas tank with your credit card? Were you specific? Correct. Yeah. I think you forgot that part, right? Yeah. Somebody (laughs) definitely found that wallet, took out that card, filled up, I think $300 worth of gas. And then they put that card back and put it back on, and I didn't notice that till my wife texts me a couple of weeks later and was like, Hey, I got a credit card statement. Um, why'd you get $300 worth of gas out of this town in Idaho? And I'm like, I did not. So anyways, that's, I've my, had... that's my favorite part of the story is that you got your card back, but somebody else used it, filled up like, I don't know, nine tanks of gas and then left the card back for you. <laughs> An honest thief. I, I thank you. Um, appreciate you returning the card and I still have the same credit card. So if they're watching or listening and they happen to write down the Don't name, go buy more gas. Yeah, man, just come on. I already sponsored 300 bucks. I'm good on it, but yeah, <laughs> we've had lots of bad things happen. I know my dad this year, he, he got bucked off his horse, didn't break anything, but his bow did break. He had a backup bow. I've had a four wheeler run over my bow and I've had to use my backup bow. I've had my dad drive over my bow in camp. Um, so those are just three like big ones. So we always bring a backup bow because, you know, when you're out West, you don't know where there's an archery shop. If the archery shops open, if you're going to have a place in line for them to fix your stuff and if they have the right parts and really the, a capable bow tech that could fix. So we just always have two bows ready to go. That's a pretty important thing. So a lot of guys upgrade their bows about this time every year when the new ones come out. And I always encourage them to like, Hey man, if you really like your bow, but you're interested in upgrading, just save your bow while it's tuned and shooting broadheads perfect and just put it on ice as your backup bow. If you're going to travel out West, you're going to want two bows. And then tell your wife, you're going to go spend another three grand on a bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's a fun conversation yep. right there. <laughs> yeah. I don't know why more people don't buy like last year's bow when the new year's bow come out because man, I like I shoot Matthews. I see a lot of Phase Fours for sale right now because people want to get the new lift. And I'm yeah. like, if you need a backup bow, that Phase Four is like right here. This is my backup bow, and it is a Phase Four, and it is amazing. So, yeah, there's always an opportunity to get a good deal on a bow. Um, yeah. But you definitely bow. that's the one I shot this year. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. That's if this thing's dialed, and this is my current backup bow. So. Well, I'm glad you got your wallet back. <laughs> yeah 
we always it, we, all, we all do stuff like that man we all do stuff like that yeah so we all do dumb crap like that and it drives me nuts when i do it like i literally just sit there and go i'm a freaking idiot why did i do that <laughs> so I mean, yeah there's so many stories of things that go wrong i wanted to capture more of the i think that was that good because you're you're showing you know it's like you said right you can edit the crap out of it and make it look like everything's just perfect but i i like that stuff because it reminds me that even the guys who are super successful who have been doing this forever like that's the first thing i thought of was that's the kind of stupid shit i do but i don't do it all the time but every once in a while i do it and i think i'm a complete idiot so when i see somebody else do it who's really really experienced it makes me feel better it shouldn't but it does good because i <laughs> can make mistakes like all of them and uh even my dad my dad's always making silly mistakes that you know i i bet my dad has been out of state on hunts with me and left me to go to some bow shop five six different times in his lifetime and this is a guy who did it again this year, and he even brought a backup bow. And he still had still to go to a bow shop? Go to a bow shop. And I know how to fix most of the stuff, but he's just, there's just, you gotta have, it's Murphy that you are going up against as a hunter. And when you're out of state, you don't have all your resources. It's like you gotta literally think of all the stuff that can go wrong and start with your vehicle and your truck and then work your way down through your gear. Um, yeah, man, that stuff happens. And it's like, how can you, how can you deal with it and continue to stay on your grind and have a good attitude about it, knowing that you're going to get some curveballs. So do I have to have a backup bow when I go next year? Like, is that a high, high recommendation to travel with two bows? I couldn't recommend that anymore. Honestly, like that is the most important thing. Like what bow is behind you there? Uh, that's a Matthews phase four. That's the phase four. I didn't know yeah. if it was a V3X or phase four. Yeah. So when it's time to upgrade to maybe the lift, you don't get rid of the phase four and you okay. have it completely set up, maybe even similar setup to your new bow, same arrows. Mm. It's tuned because the last thing you want to do is to be the guy trying to find some archery shop. Three hours open away. On a Sunday, Monday, most of them are closed. Most of their good technicians are hunters and they're out. So you might get some newer guy. And then who's to say you're first up to bat. And what if they don't even have the stuff you need? I mean, you just, I mean, if you really do the math, like how much time do you have to elk hunt in September and you're coming from South Carolina, do you really want to burn a half or even a full day of actual hunting? to deal with something that you could have just brought a backup bow. Now, if you can't afford a backup bow, you better have backup parts. You know what I mean? Like I would have, if you have like a, spend all your money on a really nice QAD rest and you can't buy a duplicate, then buy a whisker biscuit and put it in your tackle, you know, and have like, okay, if this breaks, then I'm using a whisker biscuit or whatever. Yeah. Um, things like that. So backup equipment, a repair, a DIY repair kit, uh, I do still bring all that, but I also bring a backup boat. That makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, I thought that, but I was also like, again, first time you're going, you're trying to figure all that stuff out. So the, when you were doing your video, you had said something. And again, this is, I know somebody, some people will probably watch this and go dumb questions, but there's a lot of people that watch this that are, you know, Carolina people, East coast people that haven't done this. So you were talking about, we're not going to be stalking. We're going to be ambush hunting. What does that mean? Okay. Yeah. So in that particular country that we were hunting, the elk weren't really vocalizing. Um, and that's pretty common. I mean, nowadays, like sometimes it's not a rut fest every time you step out of your truck. Yeah. Cause every yeah. video you watch on YouTube is like the elk are bugling constantly and you know every once in a while you'll get like oh they were quiet this afternoon but no one's like hey i haven't heard a bugle in four days mm, yeah people don't probably want to watch that but no, you're I, right. <laughs> not as exciting I, right I, I get it i think when i had said that on that video we had 
dropped, we had basically done a spike camp. Like my dad loaded up his horses with all his gear mm-hmm. and we had, uh, and I rode a dirt bike in and with my camp on my back and we rode in this single track trail and we'd set up a spike camp. And then in this particular area we were hunting, you can ride a dirt bike, but only to bring camp in or camp out um, or to bring meat out. And it's a pretty gnarly trail. Honestly, I hated, I hate riding that trail. I've ridden it in the past in the summer scouting and it was gnarly, but anyways, we made it there. And then it was, we had the afternoon hunt. When I say ambush versus stalking, stalking would be imply that, potentially we have them glassed up and bedded and we're going to stalk in like a mule deer. Right. Whereas with elk, it's a little bit easier to ambush when you know pinch points like elk will are notorious for crossing from basin to basin through one specific saddle. Um, So very much like a whitetail, we're hunting funnels. We know where they are, where they're likely to go through and we are putting our elk calls away and we are just, basically ambushing them at a specific trail and we have found that to work a lot better and some of these higher pressure this place we were hunting's got a lot of hunting pressure um everyone's calling at these elk and so that's the difference now stalking to me i feel like you can stalk in on elk when they're bugling on their own and you're just sneaking and gonna stalk in and shoot one or you have one bedded and you're gonna stalk in and shoot it on ambush is more like you're not moving you're holding still at one spot and they're coming through still hunting elk is more like in their bedroom or bedding area glassing through some fairly open timber take a step grid you're looking for an ear a twitch of an ear uh, a little bit of tough to hide or an antler and you're you know elmer fudding for lack of a better term and then you got the sexy elk calling bringing them into you type i mean there's lots Here's what I will say, know how to do it all, be a chameleon and don't get married with just one tactic because you're going to want to know multiple ways to get it done because that's my, it might require that. Yeah. And if you're, I mean, that makes sense, right? If you, if you're used to hunting whitetail, there's a lot of different ways. You can't just go out and, you know, throw a stand up and it's the same deal. You've got to know, am I hunting food? Am I hunting bedding? Am I hunting transition areas? So, I mean, that makes sense that elk would be the same way that you have to figure all that stuff out, which I can't imagine. I've got friends that have done this, that have never hunted elk before, gone out and just jumped on public land by themselves or with yeah. one other person. And they have no clue what they're doing. And I give them credit. They like it's it takes a ton of time and, and resources. Like I know a few people that have done it like three, four years in a row and they still have never even had an elk encounter and they're still like hustling so I, I don't know that i could do that man i don't know that i have the patience for that like i'd have to see or hear something to keep going but well, it sounds like you kind of are already working on your rough draft of what qualifies as a successful elk hunt for me yeah and our qualifications are entirely different based on who we are and what we've done and what we want to do And honestly, I think a lot of guys don't do a good enough job to take the time out of their day and understand, hey, I'm driving 30 hours to Colorado. Colorado gets pounded by public land elk hunters. Okay. Um, I've never seen an elk in the wild. I'm going to write that down. Seeing an elk would be a big W. Um, Hearing an elk bugle would be a big W. I've never camped with all my gear on my back. That's bivy hunting. If I could bivy hunt, that's another thing, um, testing gear, learning how to do things. Uh, if I could get an elk within 50 yards, then that would like really, you know, be awesome. And it, it, so you have to like kind of figure out what is your win column right. yep. for you and where you're at. You know, my win column is kill, but it didn't always use, well, probably always has been that, but it didn't always happen. And I had a, shitty learning curve you know it was tough but i would never trade it for the world it made me who i am so i i do think your listeners have if they're coming out west you got to identify what is the win column what is an actual successful hunt yeah no i agree with you it's i think sometimes too at least for me 
you know, I've, I've built a number of businesses just like you've built elk shape. And a lot of times what has helped me is being naive and stupid enough to think that I could do something that if I actually knew everything, I probably would be like, no, I can't do that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Amen. <laughs> Cause like, this is the first year I've ever hunted and I decided I was going to bow hunt. Like I really wasn't interested in gun hunting. I don't even against it. I just wanted to do something hard. And I also wanted to be able to practice at my home and not have to drive to a range every day. And so I decided I was going to learn how to bow hunt. So I bought a bow in April and my goal for the season was I wanted to kill a big deer. And now that I've done it for a season, I think that was probably kind of a nutso goal, but I got lucky and I've got family up in Southern Illinois, which is a great deer state. And you know, had a place to go hunt that was, wasn't public. And, um, and I had enough people that I picked their brains and got advice that I learned enough that I put myself in a position to shoot a good one. But now that I know what I know, if I was starting over again, I'd probably be like, you're an idiot. <laughs> but I, that's what I always do. I set these like enormous goals and that's what I want to do. Kind of like you, man. I like, I like that, man. Almost just, yeah, if you knew what it actually involved, you might not sign up for it, but. That was actually one still... of the, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just gonna say, you're gonna be so glad you did. Yeah. So when you started, when you started your channel, how long ago was that? Uh, the YouTube channel was started yeah. in 2013. Okay. And when did it start to really get momentum and take off? Oh man, somewhere along the lines, I started doing Q and a like basic elk hunting questions. I'd answer them. And I think I'd get the questions from Facebook and then I would just make a Q and a video mm -hmm. and that kind of bumped us up to 10,000 subs pretty fast. And I had no idea about YouTube, honestly. Um, and it wasn't what it is today. I thought YouTube was cool. Uh, but I owned a gym, man. Elk shape wasn't my bread and butter. It was my little side hustle. I had my little sponsorships. I could get some gear at a discount or free. I could get paid by a few companies. Like it was not, my focus was running a gym and my wife was a full-time nurse and it's 2016. I think I started a podcast to, cause I felt like my Q and a was pretty much a podcast. Right. And so I did the podcast and I was always doing social, uh, you know, Facebook, Instagram. And then I finally, what did I do? I, I think I started putting some hunts up there and then, um, one of my buddies actually, no, one of this, one of the guys who came on my podcast, uh, he was a guy from Michigan who came out and hunted Idaho and he didn't have success, but his friend did. And he wanted to, he met, emailed me and said, can I come on your podcast and talk about this experience just to help your audience out for those that are coming out West It's pretty intimidating. I said, absolutely. And we did the podcast. And then afterwards he was like, Hey, I live in Spokane. Now do you, uh, do you mind if I come to your gym and check it out? And I was like, come and sign up, man. I need members. And he came in and worked out with me a few times and he always had a camera with him. And so did I. And we started doing a little bit of collaboration and filming. And then eventually he uh, wanted to help me out with my YouTube channel. And we worked together for a couple of years. And, it, and that really changed the trajectory when we got serious. We, we committed to making two videos a week, every week for over two years. And I got to tell you, that sounds pretty easy, but that is extremely difficult to do. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. Like, when I, I just started this podcast back in the sp late spring and it's, you know, once every two weeks and that's difficult and I'm not doing a ton of editing. Like I know the amount of editing work that goes into the stuff you're doing. It's crazy. And I, now I'm sure you've got a team of people that are doing a lot of that for you, but at the time, I'm sure the two of you were doing everything yourself. Yeah. Believe it or not, I still do everything until do you really until Monday. I okay. have my first, like I have my first employee, uh, up until this point, I've only had contractors, mm -hmm. um, like 
my my buddy Tim was a contractor for a couple of years, and my buddy Tyler's a contractor, and Jake Webb, all these guys you might have seen on the channel here or there. I just hire them as you know, 1099 guys just because they all had real careers. But this my first employee is starting on Monday, and I can't wait. His name's Jeff, and I hired him not as a videographer or editor or a podcast editor or a photographer. I hired him as a brand manager, and I'm just like mm-hmm. Only thing that matters is the brand and the brand is elk shape. And we are here to sell hard work. Can you help me do all these things? And he said, yes. So he starts Monday. He moved all the way from Bozeman, Montana to, to, to do this. So I feel the pressure to not disappoint and to hopefully us. I think I can, I think I can even do better with more help and more frequency, better content. But to be honest, man, I've edited every damn video up until this point, every podcast, every photo, every Instagram post, every Instagram DM, uh, which is why I need help because it's that just is it's wild. out of control. Yeah, I, I will tell you from somebody who's like, we've built and sold multiple businesses and the biggest one we had, we had about 30 employees. And it, when it really took off was when I got, I stopped. Somebody told me a long time ago, when you stop working in the business and start working on your business, that's when it's going to grow. And you're, you're exactly right. I think you'll probably, you'll, he'll unlock all this stuff for you that you haven't been able to focus on. And then you'll be like, I need to add somebody here and I need to add somebody here. And I wouldn't be surprised if you had four or five employees a year from now, because once you really start to do that, you'll be able to focus on, the strategic direction of where you want elk shape to go versus you know having your head in the computer editing a video which they're awesome but somebody else can do that somebody else can't be you yeah i remember when so at year 10 i had this gym for 10 years Eric, and before that i was a like a normal gym manager like your regular go into a gym and right talk to like that's you and so that was me but when i owned my own gym for 10 years i had never once thought about doing anything other else like i loved it but at year 10 elk shape had start to pick up so much and i was like i love owning this gym but i would rather do elk shape you know what i mean like straight up i just love love elk shape where were you at a did, did when you made that move were you at a point where elk shape was making you the same amount of money as the gym or were you like still a lot more mm-hmm. money from the gym, but I realized I have to push my chips in if I really want to make this thing go. Yeah, the latter. I had to push some chips in, but I did have some safeguards in place. But the first thing I had to do, Eric, was I was like, okay, this gym I own is like not sellable. Yeah. I have made it. I had 10 plus trainers, coaches, employees. Uh-huh. So I had like in the last few years really done a good job hiring Mm-hmm. and working more on the business but i still hadn't created like a blueprint systems where i could sell this thing so i remember i think year 10 i spent a whole year like dialing in my systems and then i pitched two people to buy it because i kind of handpicked who i wanted to buy it right and both one the first guy i pitched couldn't get the financing in place um and then the second guy we did a deal where he would pay me in three payments over three years. Yep. We're not talking earth shattering money, folks. People <laughs> think I'm rich. I love that. They'd have well, no anytime, idea. That- anytime you say I sold a business in people's mind, that's like, oh man, you, you're rich because you sold a business. But like you said, you know, businesses are worth anything from you know, 40 grand, 20 grand to millions it just depends on we're not talking millions here. so it was one little <laughs> crossfit gym but it did i did sell it and he did pay me over three years and i was like i told my wife who was working full-time as a nurse i was like i want to try to do this elk-shaped thing full-time i have no idea if it'll work but i have three payments over three years and we by the way we didn't have any debt because we had lived on beans and rice our whole life and did dave ramsey type stuff smart. so like like by the time I was 40, I had my my house paid off. I didn't have a mortgage. And it wasn't because I made I made like $55,000 a year as a personal trainer, head coach, whatever. So I, I'm very transparent. So people don't think that daddy, mommy, her folks, like, dude, we did this just the hard way, the discipline way, the delayed gratification way. So like when I preach delayed gratification MFers, I mean it because I've done it. 
And that's a, but that's I, a great message because, you know, a lot of people see where someone ends up and they think whatever they they've got a million things in their head in terms of how that person got there because they had this or they had that, but to be disciplined enough to pay off your home when you're making 55 grand a year, like that takes a lot of freaking guts and a lot of discipline and a lot saying no to a lot of things that you want to spend your money on. And the message there is you don't just end up somewhere because you want to, right? You end up somewhere because you have a plan and you actually put yourself in a position at a certain point where you can execute on a big risk. Yeah. And obviously my wife had her income too, but we, we did start doing Dave Ramsey probably about a year after we were first married because our first year of marriage, I had a checking account. She had her own checking account. Yeah. And it was a shit show. But I would say like through the next three years was like an opportunity for me to try to do elk shape and see what it could do and be able to hang my hat on the, I tried, I wanted, you know, I went for it. I quit. Uh, I was also doing firefighting. So I quit like a part-time firefighter owned the gym and did elk shape. So like I quit firefighting sold the gym on a payment plan and went all in on elk shape. And I'm here to tell you, we haven't been doing elk shape that long, but my wife doesn't work anymore as a nurse. Um, we, I, I had to beg her to just help me with the business. Cause it's just, it's just too much going on. And I told her my job is to be in front of cameras making content because that's what drives everything. And so now we got our first employee and I don't know how much longer I'll do it. Honestly, it's, a lot of days it's a blast, Eric. Like a lot of days it's a blast. Like impact over everything. I got to say that again. Impact over everything. That is like my main filter or funnel I run all my decisions through. As I want to be someone who makes a difference in this world. Um, I'm not chasing dollars. I'm not independently wealthy. I still have to like make a living, feed a family, get kids off through this life. But, um, I gotta tell you, like we're, we're doing it. I don't know how long we'll be able to do it. I have a fallback plan. I will go be a UPS driver. I'm not clowning that. I'm like, I'm actually not even kidding. Or I'll go be a firefighter again. I'll go get a blue collar job and I'll just make sure I negotiate that. I don't work during September. Cause that is a non-negotiate. <laughs> and, uh, that's what I'm, we're doing elk shape full time. So that's yeah. what's going on in our world. I don't, my gut is that you will see exponential growth in the next 24 months. The, the minute you start adding people and expanding your bandwidth in terms of your ability to, to focus on, because I mean, you think about it, right? And I love these conversations because I'm an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur. And I end up in entrepreneurial conversations with a lot of the people I talk to. That's kind of what gravitated. One of the things that gravitated me towards you is not just your content, but how you've built your business and that is of interest to me because I, I love seeing people take risks, getting the payoff and seeing what happens with that. But there are so many verticals that are available to you within Elk Shape, which I, you're already starting, you know, you're leveraging them already, but you've got brand apparel that you could be leveraging. You could start doing equipment that you could be leveraging. And you've got that with a lot of your partnerships already. My guess is you're going to expand a lot of that as you go forward. How, how long did it take you from the time you started it before you started to see partnerships with brands like Matthews and like things like that, where you actually, you know, were getting equipment to try out. They were starting to, you know, whatever. I don't know if you're remunerated for any of those things, but how long did it take for those partnerships to start to evolve and how did that actually happen? Man, I think my first real sponsorship was, um, so I've, I've been at it a long time, friends. Like I, yeah, I'm 10 years. Old. Yeah. So remember that everybody. Well, prior to elk shape, I had a company called train to hunt with a buddy. And prior to that, I was an outdoor writer because we didn't have Facebook and Instagram. You wrote articles and took submitted photos. So I was published in Eastman's bow hunting journal. I had a column, a fitness elk hunting column in, um, Bowhunter magazine. I've written for bow and arrow. Like, so my side hustle before elk shape was basically an outdoor writer. And people, and, so then people within the community knew you, it wasn't, it wasn't like you had to make people in the community know who you were. You really were expanding. 
people to outside the community to, to, to get to know who Dan was. Yeah. And honestly, Eric, it's interesting because like everyone got magazines back then, but like the big thing to do was to get to spend three or $400,000 and buy TV time with the outdoor channel, the sportsman's channel, hire a videographer, a producer, an editor, and go make 12, 22 minute videos for your season. And that's what people did. That's where people like Michael Waddell really shined, uh, Realtree road trips. And then he did bone collector on his own. Um, I never was that guy who wanted to be on a TV show, but I will tell you, eventually magazines fizzled out. There's still a few good ones. And eventually outdoor television, in my opinion, has fizzled out to where the new medium is YouTube. There's no question. I, all, all the guys that people are watching are, are on YouTube, I, in my opinion. I completely agree with you. And so I'm, I kind of skipped. I did the writing. I skipped the buy a TV television program. And I actually worked for one at one point as an editor. So that's kind of where I learned how to edit. And then as soon as the digital era started creeping in, it's been a constant trajectory because I've been in the hunting industry since 2006 was my first archery trade show, first shot show. Uh, these are insider type trade shows. So I've had sponsorships. I've had really wimpy ones, but they've been with companies that I just absolutely adore. And so I've built these relationships over a long time. But to answer your question, man, I didn't, I remember when probably about a year into doing elk shape full-time sold the gym where we started getting some legitimate like traction to mm. where I actually could look at some of these companies I'm working with and it's time to renew a contract and be like, well, things have changed. I do this full-time. I have been doing this full-time for the year. Look at the difference in the measurables and our impact. Do you want to step up your game? Cause I stepped up mine. Right. And some people don't, they're like, no, some people do. And then new companies come in and really what I would advise anyone is if you're going to do what I'm doing, make sure you work with people that really um, appreciate your message, how you conduct and what you're doing. And they, they're behind it. So they support you uh, and that they promote you just as much as you promote them. It is a two way street. It's not the funnest job. There. There's a lot of, there's just, it's not all fun all the time. I, I think people know that, but um, you know, from afar, it could look like that's the best job ever. It's like anything. Um, I, I just have this one rule where I am a passionate hunter, Eric. And like, I literally am not willing to give up anything that's going to diminish my passion for being a hunter, specifically a bow hunter. I love to bow hunt. That is like my thing. And if it ever feels like a job or I'm like, I don't want to bow hunt today, I'm going to do a considerable reevaluation on my life decisions. Yeah. Well, I think honestly, that really comes across I, in the content that you put out. I think that's one of the things that attracted the people that I watch. Um, and obviously the more you hunt, the less you're able to watch, but the people I watch, uh, when I do take time to do it, those are the the people, right? The stuff that's super over edited and like, that doesn't really interest me. It's, it's, the people that interest me and your passion for bow hunting, your respect for the animals. Like that's, that was the, the thing that attracted me to you and to a few other people like you when I first, you know, like I said, decided I was going to do this at 55, which is a little bit nuts. Um, I, I remember watching your video, your 60 hours video and your dad's like, I'm 67. This ain't getting any easier. And I'm like, I'm not far behind you, bro. <laughs> I'm not far behind you and I'm still, and I'm just trying to figure it out. So I'm like, am I an idiot for climbing a tree at 55? But it's fun as hell, man. Like, I don't know how I, I think it was just cause I was buried in football and something that I also have a huge passion for. I love coaching, but I mean, the fact that I'm discovering something like this at my age, it's literally like this brand new thing that is just freaking amazing. It's awesome. Let me ask you this, man. And I know this is your pod. So I don't try to ask. No, honestly, I love, I love it when people ask questions, uh, like go for it. Where was your longest coaching tenure at? Uh, well, from a, so from a college perspective, the one I was at the longest was the university of South Carolina. I was there for four years. Okay. So let's talk about, 
and I'm not a huge diehard college football fan because it's I'm hunting so much, but I yeah, it's the same time. Me, it's happening at the same time. Do you want to watch an NFL game or a college football game? Man, I'm gonna choose a college game. Hundred percent. But um, I don't even watch the NFL. What's your thoughts about Florida State and Alabama? And for those that don't know, don't worry about it because. Yeah. But what's your thoughts? Sure. Now, interestingly enough, I just put a podcast up on Monday morning talking about the college football selection. I did it with Jeff Scott, who was the offensive coordinator at Clemson when they won all their natties. Uh, He was the head coach at South Florida for three years. This is his first year that he hasn't been coaching in a while, but he's a friend of mine. I actually started coaching with like when I had been out of coaching for about four years, um, he his dad was a guy that I worked for at South Carolina. So I'll try to make a long story really short. I worked for his dad at South Carolina. He was in middle school at the time. I got out of coaching, went into business. I'd been in business for a while. I moved back to to South Carolina. I run into him at a grocery store. He's like 22 years old. I'm like, Hey Jeff, what's going on? We start talking. He's an offensive coordinator at a local high school. He's about to get this head job at this other high school. And he's like, I'm trying to find a line coach. I can't believe I just ran into you. Would you ever consider coaching again? And so long story short, I went in to help him do it, but I still love coaching. And I ended up coaching high school ball for like another 20 years. He ends up being the offensive coordinator at Clemson. And so we got to be really good friends. So that's how I got him on the podcast and we talked about it. But the answer to your question is this. I totally agree with the selection. Um, This is why. I think they should put the four best teams in the playoff not the teams with the best record and not the teams that have played the best, you know, for the first 10 games of the year, Florida state was Florida state because of Jordan Travis. You take Jordan Travis off of Florida state. I have every bit of respect that I can have for every kid on that team. They did everything they could to put themselves in position, but I promise you, you put them on the field with Alabama right now and they lose by three touchdowns. Oh, damn. Okay. That's just, they're not the same football team. If you look at how they performed against a a very average Louisville team in the ACC championship, they scored 16 points and did it with defense. They had five sacks against Louisville. If you look at the way they performed the week before that, same deal. So I just don't think they're the same football team. And I don't think that they're one of the four best teams in the country. I thought it was the, the the committee made the right choice in my opinion. So what did, uh, what happened to Alabama this year to put themselves in a position where they weren't like, who did they lose to? Uh, beginning, they lost to Texas right early in the season, who obviously Texas is number three in the playoff, yeah. right? Yep. So that doesn't really hurt them. And the biggest difference between Alabama is actually the opposite. Like they're the opposite of Florida state, right? Florida state hot the whole year, lose their quarterback, not the same football team. Alabama, complete opposite. Come into the year, they don't have their quarterback situation figured out. Milrow starts two games. They win. They don't play great. Then they start a different kid uh, against Texas because they weren't sold on Milrow. They lose to Texas. They put Milrow back in, and they say, we're making a commitment to this kid. We're not pulling him out. He's going to be our quarterback, win or lose. And he has just gotten better and better and better and better the whole year. And now they're coming into the playoffs with a quarterback who's on fire versus Florida state who would have been limping in without their quarterback. Okay. Thank you. That answers that. My personal opinion. Yes. And and you can argue with me and like tons of people would argue with me and they could argue with me because if you look at what the playoff committee has done in the past, they have rewarded record. There's been plenty of years where they would have put Florida State in. And I think they have just kind of graduated to their, you know, they get feedback and people, they hear the, you know, the voices. And and over the years, people have said, you should put the four best teams in, not the four most deserving, which is kind of what Florida State would be. And so, I gotcha. you know, this is the last year of this four-team playoff. So I think they made the right call. Next year, they go to 12 teams and, none of this happens because no one's going to care whether the 12th or 13th team got in. Yeah, no. And so next year it'll go to, you said 12. Yeah. It goes to a 12 team playoff next year. Mm-hmm. That's way more exciting. man. That'll be. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. The conference champions will all get in and the power conferences 
Um, and then they'll take the conference championship from one of the, I think, less powerful conferences and the rest will be at large teams that they'll decide with a committee on. So the top six teams will be conference champs and then the other six teams will be committee selections. Okay. I see you. Yeah. So, you know, I can get your in reach and I can text you on the mountain and tell you what's going on, man. <laughs> Seriously. Cause it's hard to keep track of anything when you're gone. Chasing yeah. Vehicles, but I, I didn't watch much football this fall. And honestly, the best thing you could ever do is get YouTube TV because you can go back and, and pick any game and it will give you the highlighted plays from the game. So you don't have to watch the game. You can just watch the top 20 plays and know what happened in the game. Yeah, I've heard nothing but good things about and I'm a huge YouTube guy anyway, so that's cool. Yeah. Well, hey, bro, I, like I know I've had you on here for over an hour, so I, I want to let you get back to your regular life and and rocking and rolling with elk shape. But super appreciative of you taking the time to get on here obviously you know you've been doing this for a long time this is brand new pod and uh just you know being willing to talk hunting with a rookie hunter uh for me to gain some knowledge from you and the whole reason i started this honestly this podcast was to be able to talk to people that i thought were interesting and i think you're super interesting i love what you're doing with your brand i love your honesty your transparency um i love your ethos uh you know faith family fitness and hunting. I mean, that's freaking awesome. That's my ethos too. I think that's why I connect with you. So I appreciate you being here, brother, a lot. Hey, it's an honor, man. Um, I've said it before, but I, I don't turn down podcasts because I remember in 2016 when I started mine and I had to ask a lot of people to come on and um, I just think you pay it forward. And I think you have a lot to offer just being the fact that you've been a coach at a high, high level have a passion for hunting we didn't talk about this on the pod but you've lost 70 pounds on your journey like you have 70 pounds off your skeletal body that you don't yeah. have to deal with that's a lot of weight like, bro <laughs> you inspire me and i think you got a great message and um i'm just again i'm honored our community is small united not divided yeah man thanks for having me on man i appreciate it brother thanks for being here you bet